0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, In true Thomas fashion, I've continued to increase the number of pages of notes that I have, um, not learning my lesson about how quickly I can get through them. Uh, So we'll go ahead and get started. We're discussing the last chapter of our book. Um, It's actually an appendix, but it's titled, Does God Really Feel? So uh, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this day that we can come and hear your word and uh, worship you. We thank you for this book that we've been going through. We thank you for how it's helped us to understand uh, our own emotions as you've given them to us and how we ought to engage with them. We thank you for your word and the truth that it's been speaking to us about our emotions. Lord, as we turn now to study... um, what we can learn about you uh, from your word. We pray that you give us um, humility and help us to uh, trust in your word and uh, seek truth and not rely on our own understanding. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so let's do a quick, quick recap. Um, emotions have been given to us by God. They are a good thing. Um, even the negative ones, it's okay to feel bad, we talked about, right? Emotions uh, have effects on us. Uh, when we talk about what emotions are, uh, we talked about how emotions uh, motivate us, right? They move us to do something. Uh, they also communicate to us and to other people what our values are. And they intensify or Uh, dilute our relationships um, depending on the kind of emotion and the circumstance, right? Emotions also don't come in single file. Uh, They come and go in response to things and they come instinctively and they come all jumbled up, right? They also come in a physical form and our God-given body is a critical way in which we actually experience those emotions. So if we consider all those different characteristics of emotions, uh, we see that on the one hand it it's something there's something truly godlike about our emotions there's there's part there's something about being made in god's image uh, that means that we can express these emotions in a way that's consistent with god's own character but on the other hand there's something that's also clearly a uniquely human experience right emotions. You know, dominate our headspace, right? They motivate us to do a specific, often immediate thing that sort of at the expense of whatever else we were doing previously. Um, that, that sort of jumbled onslaught of emotions um, will, even even when they're completely good, perfect. You know, it's the correct emotion, you know, correct amount, and everything. Um, it's still going to kind of overtake us um, in good and bad ways, and the physical manifestations of emotions in our body is probably the most obvious clue that while our emotions are from God they're, and part of God's image in us, there's clearly something different about how they manifest in us as opposed to God. So as we're considering, does God have emotions? Does God feel? How, how does that connect to or what's that look like relative to our emotions? Uh, We've got to keep these things in mind. So how do we sort this out? Obviously, there are some ways that God won't feel like we do. He's not going to physically cry tears because he doesn't have a body. Um, What about the other, what about the rest of it? What, what, what seems right? Well, it'd probably be dangerous to try to answer a question uh, about something as fundamental as who the Lord of the whole universe is, just from what seems right. So instead of Jumping straight into some guesses or some speculation, let's back up and let's look at Scripture and understand what Scripture says about who God is fundamentally, and then we'll look to apply that to this understanding of His emotions. So let's see. I think you're up, Julia. First Timothy 6:15 6, through 16. Amen. Similarly, Isaiah 55, uh, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what are we seeing there? He's not like us. There's a creator-creature distinction, right? We'll come back to that. Um, In Isaiah 40, you can try to follow along, but I'm going to hop through a bunch of different verses. Um, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Uh, That was verse 10. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Uh, Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So clearly we are dealing with a, a Lord who is is to some degree incomprehensible. We'll come back to that too. Uh, Josh, Job 22, 2 and 3. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if he you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Yeah, similarly, uh, Job forty-one eleven. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Paul uh, quotes that in Romans eleven, and and uh, right after he marvels, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. And he closes verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Uh, Psalm 50, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Uh, Obviously, facetious language. God is, of course, not hungry because everything comes from him. Um, Acts 17, 24 and 28, we've got Paul. Let's see here. 17. So, Paul's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. From one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So, that creator-creature distinction is so throughout scripture, right? This is a really, really strong distinction. And it's so strong that we learn that God is unsearchable and that he, this is connected to who he is as creator. Uh, we'll, we'll explore that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, Hebrews 6, starting in verse 13, and then I'll hop around. This idea of God as supreme. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then verse, uh, verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have the strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So now we're getting a new attribute, right? That there's this unchangeableness of God um, and that also that he is the most supreme. You can't go back further than God. There's nothing that God can even, there's no even concept that God can swear by, right? He doesn't say, to Abraham, Well, I swear by love or by truth. He swears by himself. We'll connect that again in a little bit. Um, Exodus 3, verse 13, and uh, on that Hebrews passage, I, I wrote down, uh, Anselm said that God is something than which nothing greater can be thought, which is a really simple statement, but the more you keep thinking about it, the more it, uh, at least for me, <laughs> really, it's kind of mind-blowing. Anything, Try to think of any way in which you can think of something greater than any part of God. You can't do it, or if you can, well, then that's, that's what God is. Exodus three: God is revealing His covenant name, right? Verse 13. Um, then Moses said to God, "If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, "The God of your fathers has sent me to you." And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name is, his identity is his name. His, he's self-existent, self-sufficient. Um, Jesus, you know, references this in John 8:58 when he tells the, uh, the crowd truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am Jesus here he's not only claiming divinity but he's also relating God's self-sufficiency into his eternality right that God is outside of time we'll come back to that too Psalm 90 Exploring further this idea of God and time. Psalm 91 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Similarly, in in 2 Peter 3, 8, with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Isaiah 57 says that God inhabits eternity. Revelation 1, 4 refers to the Lord Jesus, who is and who was and who is to come. Well, not only is Jesus' existent past, present, and future, as Revelation says, but Hebrews thirteen eight says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So all of these divine attributes, right, His unchangingness, His eternality, they're connected. And this isn't unique to only the second person of the Trinity either. Malachi three six for I the Lord do not change. James one seventeen. Uh, says that gifts come from the Father of Lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Right? This isn't just a abstract. Well, God doesn't, you know, God doesn't change. But no, there's there's no even variation. Right? There's no even. There was a little movement. The shadow changed. There's no variation or shadow due to change. Um, Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. Oh, I thought I had that one written down. Sorry, let me flip there. I'll start in verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also attain obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trust- trustworthy for if we have died with him we will also live with him. If we endure he will also reign with him. We will also reign with him. If we deny him he will also deny us. If we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God not only doesn't, but can't change his nature. His mercy and love, a- and his judgment and anger, are perfect and unchanging. A couple more verses about who God is. Corman, verse, uh, 1 John four I'm only flipping there. I'll flip to the next one here. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Yeah, so God is love, right? Isaiah 54, uh, 5 through 8, we get this picture of God's um, love and how like him it is everlasting. Uh, Verse 5 For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer. And then one more, just so we understand, this applies to all of God's attributes or uh, emotions Numbers 11, 1 and 2. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Okay, so we all perfectly understand God now, right? Show hands. Good, that was a test. God's incomprehensible. You can't fully know him. Good job. Um, the confession here, Westminster Confession, is helpful to kind of summarize, though, everything that we were just barely scratching the surface of in reading through that. Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 7 What is God? God is a spirit. "...in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth." So the confession hits on several core facets of God that we saw in the verses that we surveyed, and theologians give some big names to them. We will write them down as we go through, but quickly, the simple concept is, number one, we can't fully understand God. Number two, God is self-sufficient. Number three, God is infinite in all his attributes. Number four, God is not made up of parts. Number five, God is not bound by time. Number six, God does not change. And then number seven, the one that we are looking at primarily, God does not have passions. So we'll do a quick run through of the first six so that we can dig into that seventh one. Um, And we could spend year-long classes on one of these things. So bear with me as we sort of buckle in and go through these as quickly as possible. Um, Number one, Does anyone want to guess we already we already said the word like three or four times yes and I'm gonna claim like parks claims that I can't spell right when I write on the board so you don't make fun of me if I get it wrong there we go incomprehensibility so in one sense this one is kind of easy we get it we can't fully know God right he's God we're not that's that creator creature distinction but what that means is that critically God's not just like a superhero, right? He's not just a better human, everything like we have, but better, without the mistakes, without the flaws. No, he's his own category of being, right? And that's critical to understanding everything that we're about to talk about. And it also means that a study of God demands our humility and requires faith in order to understand. Um, Augustine, as he's referencing Isaiah 7, 9, which says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And Augustine writes, uh, crede ut intelligas, believe so that you may understand. Note, this is the inverse of what our culture since, you know, before the Enlightenment has told us to do, which is understand it first, and then you can believe it, right? Seeing is believing. No, no. We must believe in the Lord God and his word and he will reveal himself to us. So that means there's going to be preconceived ideas and notions that we're going to have to dispel and we're going to have to disabuse ourselves of if we want to trust what God says about himself. Okay, number two. If someone besides David or Josh can get this one, I'll be impressed. Don't feel bad, I didn't know it either before I wrote it down. Okay, this is... Aseity. I, I really thought about writing a bunch of crazy big theological words on the board and then telling you guys to guess which ones were real and which ones weren't, but <laughs> I, I needed the board for this, so I didn't have enough room. Um, aseity, this is the idea that God is self-sufficient. God's name, right, I am, is, is, that's it, I am. Not I am something, I am. God needs nothing because he's the root and source of all good things. Uh, Anselm writes that God has of himself all that he has while other things have nothing of themselves and other things having nothing of themselves have their only reality from him. This further means that God's love or goodness or even love itself or goodness itself, they're not just things that God has or that God does. They're who God is, and he is who they are, or what they are. Number three, this one's a giveaway because the word's in there, but God's infinity. In one sense, we sort of say this a lot, and we gloss over it. Oh, God's infinite. What does that really mean? Oh, that's the next one. <laughs> Steal my thunder, but but yes, and it, it does. I mean, they're all connected, right? Um, but yeah, he's. If there's no beginning and no end, then there's no measure, right? Um, you can't measure any aspect of God because He's infinite. And I mean, if you if you're a math nerd, then you can maybe appreciate this concept a little better. But the, the simple idea of infinity, right, is you can, you, just, you can keep adding more and you can never get to a point where you have to stop and say this is where it ends, right? It literally just goes on forever. So God's infinite, but his attributes are with him infinite, right? God's love, his justice, his mercy, his patience, his strength, his wisdom are all infinite. You can't conceive of more or better love more or better justice, more or better mercy, patience, strength, wisdom, than you will find in God. Number four. Anyone want to take a guess at this one? God is not made up of parts. This is the idea of simplicity, which might seem like a weird word to ascribe to God. God's not simple. Uh, Well, theologians will say God God is simple, and what they mean by that is that you can't break God up into little pieces. You can't say, oh, God is 100% love plus justice plus mercy plus this plus that, right? God simply is those things. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We read in God that there there is in God no variation or shadow due to change. God is self-sufficient, he's infinite, thus he's Always infinitely loving, always infinitely just and merciful in an inseparable way. You can't sort of dial down any of God's attributes like a, you know, knob on a, on a mixer, right? If you did that, you'd lose God entirely in the process. Augustine says God has no properties, but is pure essence. Remember, God's not like you and me. We are finite. We're bound by time. We're moving between situations and expressing love in one moment, anger in another, goodness here, patience there, but God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Number five. I just gave it away, but what's this one? God is not bound by time. Eternal. I guess if I wanted to match the I'd write eternality. Oh my goodness. There we go. Okay. God is not bound by time. So this is another one that we kind of say a lot. God's eternal. um, And maybe we don't quite meditate on what exactly that means, right? It's maybe easy for us to think of the fact that God's eternal in the sense that, well, God will always be here and God always was here. But, it's more than that, right? It's, it, God's not like us moving from one moment of time to another. God is not even bound by time, right? Uh, Aquinas says that God sees all things together and not successively like we do. God is outside of time. You can see this in Jesus' claim about before Abraham was, I am, right? This is really important when we think about how God's attributes or emotions manifest into time because while we moving through space and time see things differently right god outside of time infinite and simple is not moving uh, matthew bear kind of relays this analogy of uh one of these puritans that god's attributes are sort of shining forth like this single uninterrupted ray of pure white light and it hits the stained glass window or maybe a prism. And we're looking at the window or we're holding the prism. And as we move the prism or as we move relative to the window, the lights, you know, broken into all these different colors are changing. We might see one color more strongly than another depending on how we hold it or how we stand. But we're moving, God's not, right? The light is uninterrupted, it's pure, it's one. And we are, as we move and we move through space and time, we see God's manifestation in space and time in different ways. But it's not because God is changing, right? So, giveaway. Next one God does not change. This is immutability. So, again, a lot of times we can say, yeah, God doesn't change, and we think about this idea, or that just means he doesn't break his promises, uh, which is true, uh, and that's critical. But if we believe divine simplicity and aseity, then it, me- it must mean that immutability also applies to those attributes of God, right? In other words, if, if God simply is love, if God is goodness, and God's unchanging, then his love is unchanging, his justice is unchanging, right? So think about how often the psalmist writes this as, or appeals to the fact, in a sort of like legal pleading that God's love endures forever, right? It's all through the Psalms. He's not just saying, you know, your love's pretty good, like maybe do something good for me because you're pretty loving. No, he's, he's appealing your love is unchanging. It endures forever. So because of that, please do this. Or sometimes he's just praising the fact that that is the case, right? Um, And if we believe divine uh, eternality, that means that God's unchanging means he's not subject to that progression of time like we are. So our actions don't bring about a change within God. When we do something, we are not causing god to change what he's doing or to change his mind now i can see you hold on a minute i'm pretty sure i've read somewhere that when israel messes stuff up god gets angry isn't that god changing well, what about all those times that it says that god regrets something what about genesis 6 5 and 6 right before the, he sends the flood. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Let's look at an example, 1 Samuel 15. Get ourselves a little more confused. And then I'm going to have to speed up, speed up. First Samuel 15, context. Saul has just uh, failed... second Samuel, has just failed to uh, do what God asked him to do uh, in terms of destroying um, all of Agag's stuff. So pick up verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Fast forward to verse 24. Uh, Samuel's been talking to Saul. Saul's trying to At least seemingly repent. He says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Verse 10, or verse 11, I regret. Verse 30, 29, he's not a man that he should have regret. Okay, what's going on here? How does that make sense? The Bible's consistent, right? We can trust this. What's going on? Exactly, exactly. Think about this: is uh, is Jesus a physical door? No. D- does God have wings or arms? No. But the Bible says that He does in Psalms, right? In the in, in different uh, proverbial literature. So we understand that those things, those physical attributes, we, we get that, we can read that and say, okay, obviously God doesn't have wings. He's using you know, an anthropomorphism or uh, some sort of anthro or some sort of something-pomorphism, right? Um, that, that God's using language that we can understand, right? Um, so similarly, these passages about God's seeming expression of emotion or regret are what theologians would call an anthropopathism. Um, It's a usage of the description of our emotions and our internal character to describe God. Remember, God is incomprehensible, right? So he has to be related to us and he has to relay himself to us analogically. In other words, using analogies that we understand. Um, Calvin and many others will say that God is like a loving parent who sort of lisps or, or baby talks to us in words that we understand. Okay, so God doesn't have emotions. Or wait, but he does, but they're, they're different. Okay, so to, this is where, on top of pouring through Scripture to understand what it says about God, we also have to understand our verbiage, right, and how it's changed. So we use one word, emotion, to refer to what historically many people have thought of as two different things. And those two different things would be passions and affections. Remember how emotions motivate us to do something and they manifest in our bodies, right? They sort of, you feel the emotion coming on and then it drives you to do something. You're being moved by that emotion, right? That's passion. But emotions also are communicating and they come from what we value, right? That's affection, right? I'm not gonna have an emotion of anger I see somebody getting hurt if I don't care about them. So those passions, those are very uniquely human, right? We in our, you know, finite physical state, we're moving from one situation to another that emotions, you know, situations happen to us and they manifest in our space and time, right? My brain is consumed with this thing at this moment or manifests in our physical body. And so obviously God as a spirit with no body, who's not bound by time, would not have passions in that sense. Uh, the authors of our book write that God is uh, impassable. I don't know where my there it is. God is impassable, meaning that the creation uh, or his creatures cannot push him around emotionally. Um. Kevin DeYoung says, if we're equating emotions with the old sense of passions, then God doesn't have emotions. But if we're talking about affections, then he does. So it's important to recognize that these passions versus affections idea, it's not taking away some good thing from God, right? Passions are only present in us because we are human, because we're limited in ways God isn't, right? Unlike God, we're finite, and so our, our affections are going to ebb and flow, but God's affections, his grief over sin and pain, his anger over sin and injustice, his joy over and, over and love for his people, his compassion, patience, everything, they're infinite and perfect and unchanging. So God has this perfect and eternal outpouring of every emotion that's more true and more strong and more pure than we could ever have. So, I have to fast forward a little bit here, but you may still feel a little bit of an itch. Like, okay, so God, you know, he feels emotions but like, all the time, but like he, he's, not, he's not really feeling my pain, right? If I'm in a hard situation, he's, he's not really suffering with me. I, I want someone to feel my pain. Well, first of all, it's helpful to recognize that what we think we need when we're, not, when we're in a bad situation or when we're feeling down is not always what we actually need, right? Um, Matthew Barrett gives this great analogy of there's a fire in your house, you're stuck in the fire, you're, you, you can't get out of the house, you're, you're terrified, you're freaking out, you're on fire, you're burning. Uh, what do you need right then? Do you need someone to hop into the fire with you and just sit there and be like, I feel your pain? No, you need a firefighter to kick the door in and come get you out of the fire and you need a doctor to help you, right? And so in the first sense, we need to realize that somebody feeling our pain with us isn't necessarily the most important thing, right? Actually being rescued from the thing that's causing us pain and suffering is more important, right? Um, But but back to that, you're still like, okay, but somehow this empathy idea seems important, right? And just a second ago, I said the Lord is not wounded by our pain and suffering. He's impassable. But you may have a verse ringing in your ears right now, right? He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Okay, that's not just another something-something pathism, right? That's, that, this is, of course not, right? This, these passages are speaking of the God-man, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. You see, the infinite, immutable God loves us so much that his Son became man for us that we might have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. The Lord knows our frame. He knows that we need a co-sufferer, someone who himself has suffered when tempted, and is able to help those who are being tempted. This is, this is the mystery of mysteries, right? He, Hebrews 2 says, He for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This, to me, this is mind-boggling. Uh, that This self-sufficient I am becomes a man in need of food and sleep and friends. The infinite... Becomes finite, the eternal steps into time, the immutable becomes mutable, and the impassable becomes passable. This is how great God's love is for us. He manifests His infinite, eternal, perfect affections in flesh and blood for us. Uh, Isaiah says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when He makes His soul an offering for our sin. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, no, God doesn't have emotions, at least not like us. He has affections, and they're more perfect and eternal and pure and infinite than ours. And those affections set on his covenant people in eternity, as he covenanted with himself to save a people, those affections sent forth the very Son of God, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, he has emotions just like ours. He can sympathize with our weakness. Weep with us as we weep, and rejoice with us as we rejoice. But, perhaps best of all, his incarnation to become like us, it wasn't just so that he can sympathize with us. It wasn't just so he could sit down and cry with us when we cry. His incarnation, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, is Jesus as the cosmic sovereign firefighter kicking in the door, right? And saving us from the flames. Uh, as as the hymn says tis mystery all the immortal dies and by his wounds we are healed let's pray heavenly father we praise you for your your ways are higher than our ways and we cannot comprehend you you are eternal unchangeable you are Self-sufficient, you need nothing. Lord, you you had no need to make us. Lord, as some say, some say that you were lonely, and that's why you had to create us. No, you have perfect fellowship in in yourself and the Trinity. You need nothing. There's nothing we can give to you. And yet, because of who you are, because of your love, you covenanted to make a a people for yourself. And even when we sinned against you, that love remains unchanging. And you purpose to save us. And Lord, we praise you for the sending of your son, Jesus, who is a man like us, who can feel with us, but more importantly, who can save us from our sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to prepare our hearts to come worship you now. We pray that we might praise you for this mystery of mysteries, that you would love us so much, that you, the infinite, would become finite, that you, the unchangeable, would become a human being bound by time, that you, the impassable, would love us so much as to become passable for us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Very very convicting for me to go through this. <laughs> So after this week I'll know better and then yes that would be great. Thank you. Are those y'all's markers from Zenny school? Yeah. Okay. I thought they were wedding markers for writing on something because they were right next to something else. Okay. We didn't end up using them but something get library. Yeah, good call. What did you all do with all the cloths that were here, For all the cloths that were here drying? No, but, yeah, last night I wrung them out and put them there, and now they're gone, And I, which is fine. I just want to know what I was supposed to have done with them, that whoever it was did with them. Well, somebody stealthed like a couple random things this morning. <laughs> okay. Good. Good deal. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hey. Theo, you want to go in nursery? With your friends? Is CJ in there too? CJ and <gasps> a friend. <laughs> a friend who's also conflicted. <laughs> conflicted. Do you, you want to go in nursery? Dad. You wanna go in nursery? With CJ? Oh. Scared, with Big Church? Scared of what? Scared. No way to It's like he went behind the rocking chair and freaked out. Are you scared of the other person? Yeah. yeah. No. No. recorded. <laughs> So this is going to hear some fun uh, post session conversations as well as some nice screaming. S- screaming? <laughs> uh, to children in the nursery. Oh, um. So right Corbin or Jeb. Okay. Oh. I won't warn them. It's yeah. good. I mean, I, I, I've had people go to the bathroom without warning me, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you went If I ever do that, please tell me. I'm only used to hug my friend. My you know, I will if I could have had a bad time. are being stolen. Just back. You, you put so many extra ones up here. I know. You? Most of these are actually from me. Yeah, because I'm supposed to have like two in there. Are two. Yeah. Well, now you have two. Last time, that's not. Nice. just three